We will now read today's scripture reading from 2 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 6. In our Pew Bibles, this is on page 260. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Jeram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. So anyone who has... uh difficulty finding child's names, it's all right there for you. Um, you can just pick one of those. It's very unique. Chapter 8, kind of a challenging passage in that it records for us all of David's conquests and all these wars, which makes it very challenging for some people in, in terms of how they look at this, whether this is a negative thing or whether this is a positive thing. And I would understand that there are some who may instantly think that this is just a negative thing because it's war, it's, it's death, it's not a good thing. And you might even look at this a little bit deeper and think that these wars were unnecessary and that we don't read a direct order from God for him to carry out these conquests. So I can see challenges in terms of just reading this. But there are indications that this was actually a positive thing when we look at verses like 6 and 14. So verse 6 reads, And the Lord gave victory. And the word victory there, the Hebrew word there is literally saved to David wherever he went. And the Lord gave victory or saved to David wherever he went. And so it seems that these victories are positive things, that God is behind these victories, that God is giving victory to David, and, and God did make a promise with David in chapter 7. We, we spent three weeks looking at this Davidic covenant in chapter 7, and in verse 9 of chapter 7, it reads this. God said this, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. It's funny because a lot of times my kids will look over my shoulder as I'm on my computer So this week, my nine-year-old is peering over my shoulder as I'm doing this study, and 
and she's looking and she sees that I'm, I'm focusing on verses 6 and 14 on my laptop. I have my screen on. I'm, I'm trying to break down these Hebrew words. And then she sees the phrase, wherever he went while looking over my shoulder. And then she said to me, oh, Dad, it's like the, the verses I memorized in Joshua 1 through 9. And I, I looked at her. I was like, you memorized Joshua 1 through 9? And she said, yes, you want to hear it? And I was like, absolutely, of course I want to hear this. Like, this is crazy. I, I don't know Joshua 1 through 9. Like, that's crazy. And she said, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then she stopped. I said, uh, honey, that's not 1 through 9. That's chapter 1, verse 9. And she was like, yeah, I memorized that. And then she said, do you memorize the whole Bible? And I said, no, I wish I did, but not even close. Like, I don't, not even close. But it actually kind of encouraged me that, that she knows this, and, and, she, and that phrase, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And so this is kind of David here in verses 6 and 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 8, and the Lord gave victory. The Lord saved David wherever he went. Take a look at Psalm chapter 89, starting in verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him, and I will strike down those who hate him. These victories seem to be looked at in a positive way, and, and what these victories in chapter 8 give us a glimpse of is the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God will be a victorious one for God and God's people. That God's promises hold true and we can see these promises fulfilled here in verses 1, 2, 13, and 14. So let's take a look at verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and David took Methag Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And so we see this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. Now, then... To bring this all about, for the, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. That's that verse there. And then in verse 1 in chapter 8 is this record that this promise happened. That this promise in chapter 3 happened here in chapter 8. And, and other promises are found in verses 2, 13, and 14. Verse 2, and he defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute down to verse 13. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put a garrison in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This goes back to Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, when the king of Moab tried to get Balaam to curse Israel. I'm sure all your kids know this, Balaam and, and the donkey, or another word for it that we won't say. In Balaam's fourth prophecy, and this happens in Numbers chapter 24, starting in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. So 
You can read back in Numbers that these prophecies are being fulfilled in God's word. And in the case of Balaam's prophecies, these are prophecies and promises 400 years before 2 Samuel chapter 8. 400 years. Can you imagine that time span? Our, our country is only 200 years old. Like, this is double this, right? And so this is evidence of God's promises, God's plan coming to fruition. That these things aren't by chance, that these things didn't just happen, that God is in full control of fulfilling his promises, his plans, his prophecies, that he is in control of all of this. And so for the believer, this is reassurance, isn't it? That God is in control, that he has a plan, that he fulfills his promises, that he's given us prophecies throughout the scriptures pointing to these promises that he's made and showing us what is going to happen, that these promises and prophecies assure us that God is indeed in control and, and that points to his kingdom. That history shows us that God has a purpose, that he has a plan for his kingdom, that there's a kingdom pattern to this. And you'll find this in verses 1 through 6, as well as 13 and 14, which we've already read. Um, Myra's already read verses 1 through 6, so I'll, I'll skip that. But you can read that for yourself. But you'll, you'll see that there's this pattern of conflict and this pattern of conquest throughout the Bible, but specifically here in verses 1 through 6. You remember that this chapter seems to be looked at positively according to verses 6 and 14. That the deliverance from enemies is a gift from God. And in this chapter, you'll notice this word multiple times. It's this word defeated. And if you translate it literally from that Hebrew word, it is the word struck down. So if you read struck down or defeated, it is repeated seven times in this chapter of Scripture. So let's just go through a few of them. Verse 1, David defeated the Philistines. Verse 2, he defeated Moab. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer. Verse 5, David struck down. Same verb in Hebrew. And so this word defeated or, or struck down, it's used seven times in this chapter. And the kingdom comes about and through conflict. And it is won. It is conquered. It's not handed over by the enemy. The enemy doesn't just relinquish it without fighting for it. They want to keep that power. They want to keep whatever it is that they have. It, it, it is to be conquered, that there is a true conflict, there is a fight, that no one is just easily relinquishing what they already have. And, and this is how the kingdom of God is brought about. Take a look at these scriptures. It's, it's mentioning Messiah, and I just want to bring about this idea of Conflict and conquest. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So you, you hear the conflict. You hear the conquest. Look at Psalm 110. Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Conflict, conquest. It's not just in the Old Testament, it's also in the New Testament. Look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Conflict, conquest. This is all speaking of the Messiah. This is speaking of Jesus Christ, the warrior, who decisively brings about God's kingdom in its fullness as promised and prophesied by God. I know that there are some who may disagree with this or feel uneasy about this or negative about this, and there are some who feel that God is passive, that he kind of lets things happen, or I don't know how he would do things without kind of asserting himself. But the thing is, is that that's not the pattern we find in the Bible. That's just not the pattern we find. The kingdom comes about through conflict. It doesn't happen through passivity of God. That it is promised, it is prophesied, it is planned. Now, there are some who will join the kingdom without this conflict, but not all of them. Take a look at Zechariah chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Some, it's not going to be conflict, but for some it is not conflict-free. There will be conflict. There will be fighting. Others will fight not to submit not to be taken over, conquered by another kingdom. That this kingdom that they currently hold, they want to hold, and so therefore there will be a conflict. There will be a conflict because there is a sin, a rejection, a rebellion against God's kingdom. And so this rebellion and rejection of God will cause a conflict. So for us, how can the kingdom of God arrive for these people, like in Zechariah, without conflict. It's the gospel, that we share the gospel. We share this good news of God with them, the preaching, the teaching of the gospel. When Jesus came 2,000 years ago, most thought that the Messiah, or most Jews thought that the Messiah would come and overtake the Roman Empire, that he would come by force and just 
take it over and, and do it. And so that's why you had so many who were disturbed by Jesus because this pattern of, of conflict and conquest, they were hoping, like, isn't Messiah going to do this? Like, we, we see this in the scriptures. Why didn't Messiah come and overtake the Romans and conquer them and, and then rule? The problem with that is that there's this huge portion that is left out in terms of what the Messiah's work included. They left out the suffering servant that preceded this glorious Messiah. They left that part out. And so the Jews at the time were excited about a Messiah who would conquer the Roman Empire, but then they left out the suffering servant that we find in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53. They left out that suffering shepherd of Zechariah chapter 13. They left out the testimony of Psalm 22 and so many other scriptures telling them of the Messiah who was going to come at this time before the second coming. And they misunderstood this total work of the Messiah, that the Messiah was pointing to a plan and that he would return to overthrow the kingdom for the kingdom of God. And it wasn't at that time 2,000 years ago over the Roman Empire. That the conquest of the kingdom of God comes after that suffering. It comes after the cross, the grave. And there's much conflict to bring about the kingdom of God. And I think the church sometimes neuters this teaching by thinking the kingdom of God just happens without conflict and, and everyone just gets in and it overglorifies it like the crusaders did. And so there's a huge problem with going to that extreme, that people get really extreme on it. And then there's the other side of this where there's this belief that if we're just nicer, you're just nice to people, then everything works out for the kingdom of God and everyone's going to come in and we'll all join hands and sing Kumbaya and we're all good. And so there's these polar opposites, there's these extremes where there's this belief that if if we're just more harsh and we're hard about things and we're very disciplined and we tell people what to do, that the kingdom of God will open up to them and we'll just force them in. And then there's the other extreme of like, well, we're just nice and we're just welcome people and soothe people in, and then they'll come in. And then there's the cross in the middle. See, darkness was not defeated by Jesus being extremely nice. And darkness was not defeated by an extreme harshness that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were practicing. And we see from thousands of years of church history and existence that it's neither way. That it's not because you're extremely nice and you accept everything that people want to accept and we just follow the culture and we just do everything, we accept everything. And it's not this other side where we're just really harsh with people and we, we force it and we have a theocratic government and we just force people into the kingdom of God. You notice that throughout church history, neither extreme works. The kingdom of God comes because of David's seed, Jesus Christ. And there is, there is conflict but there's even more grace. And we're living in this grace now, but let's not be fooled that this conquest is coming. This conflict is already here, even though we're in a time of grace, but there it will culminate this time where the conquest happens. And so if you look at 2 Samuel 8, that 400 years before 2 Samuel 8 was 
the prophecy of Balaam and Balaam's prophecies, and, and that was 400 years, and, and that 400 years was a time of grace where people didn't change, that the suffering of God's people has this hope in Christ now because God promised us this hope in Christ who conquered death on the cross, conquered sin, conquered darkness, and will come to ultimately defeat it for everlasting. So back then is this 400-year period before this conquest, and now we're 2,000 years, and we don't know when this is going to happen, but it is going to happen. Verse 7, And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Betah and from Berotai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David was defeated, the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And so these are the spoils of all of David's conquests, of all of David's wars, and what did David do with them? Verse 11, he dedicated them to the Lord, that these were all consecrated to God for the worship of God. Now we have to go back one chapter, remember? Because David wanted to build God a temple. And God said, no, I don't want you to build me a temple. I'm going to build you a house. Right? I'm going to build you a dynasty. So keep that in mind, because in 1 Chronicles 29, David provided offerings for the temple that his son Solomon, King Solomon, was to build. Now, where did all these materials and valuables come from? 2 Samuel chapter 8. These are all the spoils that were brought about to Solomon's temple to God. And so this was David's adoration. This was David's worship. This was David's passion for God's kingdom that was coming. And the worship of God was the center of David's conflict and his conquests. So something for us to question about ourselves is what drives our desires? What drives our passion? And we, we all have conflict. And where does our conflict, where does that lead us? Is it about the worship of God? Is it about the glory of God? Or is it just something else? Because a lot of the times, much of the time, our conflicts are about getting something for ourselves. It's not for God. It's, it's not about the glory of God. It's not about the worship of God. It's for ourselves. Now let's skip down to verses 15 through 18 since we looked at 13 and 14. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity. That Hebrew word there is literally righteousness, tzedakah, to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the sons of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Seraiah was secretary, and Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, was over the Carathites and Pelathites, and whoa. David's sons were priests. And so this is a summary. This is a summary of 1 Samuel 15 up until this point we have here. Because in 1 Samuel 15, we have Saul reigning. 
So 1 Samuel 15 and before that is, is Saul reigning, and it's not until here that David starts his reign, and it, and it goes up to here. And so in verse 15 is this summary of David administered justice and equity, righteousness, to all his people. Now we know that no one is perfect, but on the whole, the, the tone of David's reign so far here in chapter 8 of 2 Samuel, it seems to be pretty good. That things are in order with all of his leadership in place, with all those people he put in place. Again, it's not perfect because we're still dealing with sinful people. But this is a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will be like. A glimpse. Imperfect, but a glimpse. That it will be filled with justice, righteousness, and order. Very different from when we read of Judges. When you look at Judges chapter 17 through 21, where in Judges chapter 17 verse 6 is one bookmark, and then Judges 21, 25 is the other bookmark, and then there's everything in between. But in those bookmark verses, it reads this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chaos. You do what you do, I do what I do, we can have different beliefs, and we just fight about it. We just sling mud at each other, we just call each other names. And at the time of the judges, without this rule of David, with justice, righteousness, and order, this is religious, political, social, moral chaos in the time of judges. And it's completely changed in 2 Samuel chapter 8, which is just a glimpse of the kingdom of God that is to come and what it will be like in perfection with justice, righteousness, and order. And so this chapter 8 pattern we look at here, justice, righteousness, order, is the same pattern we are to emulate in our homes, in our relationships, in our work environments, in our schools, churches, communities. This is how we are to live out the kingdom where we currently live our lives, to live lives of justice, righteousness, and order. So for our families and our our neighbors, our friends, our community to, to see this in us, that we live in this way, to see a, a glimpse of the kingdom life in the present through us, of the kingdom to come. In all of our our present day injustice or unrighteousness and chaos, to see what the kingdom of God will be like through us. How we live our life with justice, righteousness, order. And of course, not perfect. We're flawed. We're still sinful people. But we are to give a glimpse of what the kingdom of Christ is going to be like through us right now. Let's pray. Lord, there are these challenging passages that come to us through the scriptures and and it is difficult for us to read of, of war and conflict and loss of life and all these different things that we have a negative reflex toward. But may we not lose sight that the kingdom that you offer doesn't come about conflict-free because we do indeed have an enemy that wants to hold us from your rule, your kingdom, and living under that. 
to live in justice, to live in righteousness, to live in order. So Lord, help us to see you clearly. Help us to um, understand these glimpses that you give us and how costly what you've done for us is that you've even sacrificed your only son so that we can be free, that we can be released from the bondage of darkness and sin and evil, and that it does cost a dear price life. So God, may we not take advantage of or look lightly upon your sacrifice and your plan. You've outlined for us your promises and prophecies through your word, um, throughout all everlasting. I pray that your Holy Spirit and your word is going to penetrate our mind and our hearts so that we, we can see it and that we live our lives accordingly. Justly, righteous, orderly. In Jesus' name, amen. If uh, anyone is in need of uh, communion elements, just please raise your hand and we'll get that over to you. And if anyone is in want or need of prayer, uh, Suzanne is in the right front pew and uh, Mike is in the left front pew. They'd be honored to pray with you. This uh, wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ for his church. We've been doing this for a couple thousand years now, awaiting for the return of Christ. And as we wait, we're waiting eagerly, but also tries our patience, doesn't it? Especially when things are not that great. But may we keep faith, and may we hold on to the promises of God and look back that his promises do come to fulfillment and they're true. And we're told by Jesus to take this until his return. So may we remember Christ and what he has done for us. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. Overcoming darkness, overcoming death, evil, that we may have communion with God. Let's take this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these elements that are so meaningful, that are a regular, consistent, constant reminder to us of what you did, pointing us to the sacrifice you made on the cross and yet victorious through the grave. And we eagerly await your return to usher in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen.